Julie was my big sister in the Tridelt house at the University of Texas in Austin. One evening, Julie and I were packing up our backpacks, putting our books away after a night of study at the business school library. It was about 10.30 at night, and as we walked out of the library, Julie mentioned to me that the Bombay Bicycle Club had half-price drinks between 10 and midnight, and she thought we should check it out. We decided first we would call Claudia. Claudia was the Disciples of Christ campus minister, and we called her up and invited her to go with us, and she said, I can't, and we said, why not? And she said, I'm already in my pajamas, I'm already in bed, and we said, well, you could get up and put on some jeans and meet us, and you know what? She did. She came out late at night to listen to what was on the hearts of two college students. And Julie and I learned at 18 and 19 years of age that there was a chaplain who cared enough about our concerns to get up out of bed and meet us that she would answer the knock that came at an unexpected hour. But you know, as I look back on that experience, I'm never quite sure who was knocking on whose door. Was it these two crazy college students knocking on the door, seeking a relationship with God, with some holy other? Or really, was it God knocking on the door of two college students, simply using the voice of this amazing campus chaplain named Claudia? Today's scripture bids all of us to ask, to seek, to knock. In these words of Jesus, which were uttered in the Sermon on the Mount, the Gospel of Matthew urges all of us to knock on the door, to seek a relationship with God, and to trust that this God of ours will give us good gifts, just as a parent gives good gifts to those who ask. Now, this may strike you as just a wee bit odd, because last Sunday, our scripture from Revelation made the opposite point. In Revelation chapter 3, we are told that Jesus speaks and says that it is God who knocks on the door, that God is seeking entrance into our lives. And so which is it? Is it what Revelation says, that God knocks on the door? Or is it what Matthew says in the words of Jesus, that it is we who knock on the door seeking a relationship with God? Well, during this season of Lent, as you and I prepare for Easter, we pause to reflect on the dynamic relationship between ourselves and God and the ways that this relationship might be strengthened. Is it that we could possibly seek God through a new kind of prayer practice or through fasting or study or Bible reading or some other spiritual practice? Or is all of this seeking that we do, all of our spiritual practices, are they really just a response to God already seeking us out? When I first read this text from Matthew 7, one thing immediately jumped off the page for me. After we are told to ask, seek, and knock because God will give us these good gifts, Matthew tells us to follow the golden rule in everything due to others as you would have them do to you. Now this seemed like Matthew was just stringing together some random good sayings and Really, Matthew is doing something that the other gospel writers don't do. 
Matthew has taken the golden rule and moved it from where Luke has it and placed it here in this particular spot. I thought Matthew should have really followed Matthew's original train of thought about seeking God, and then I flipped to see what the scholars say. And I found out that in our English version of the Bible, the NRSV, the one that we read in our pew Bibles, there is a word from the original language that doesn't make it. It is the word, therefore. So what Matthew really says is, ask, seek, knock, for your Father in heaven will give good things to those who ask, therefore, in everything due to others, as you would have them do to you. The therefore, you see, they shouldn't have left it out because Matthew is making a link between our seeking of God and our relationships with other people. But what link is it that Matthew is making? What is the connection between these two verses? You know, sometimes theologians talk about two kinds of relationships that we have with God. They call it the vertical and the horizontal. The vertical relationship is the relationship that we might share with God when we're sitting in silent prayer. Me and God. And the horizontal relationship with God is the way that we might experience the presence of God alive in other people around us. All these relationships between God, between people, have this dynamic, this asking, this seeking, this give, and this take, a kind of mutuality, a kind of work, a kind of participation. It doesn't just happen. This past week in our own culture, we have been keenly aware of how fragmented relationships can become. For example, how do the Bernie supporters treat the Trump supporters and vice versa. When you and I turn on the television, it is unusual for us to see a political event and not see hecklers either on the back row or the front, front row or coming up on the stage taunting the candidates and protesting the statement that is being made. But it is easy for us to throw rocks far away. What about those relationships closest to us? The polarization the gap between people seems to be widening. This week I had dinner with some friends who were in town from North Carolina, and they said, well, we're staying with some family, and while we're in their house, we are not allowed to talk about politics because we vehemently disagree with one another. Are we able in everything to treat others as we would want them to treat us? And how is this widening gap between even family members manifesting itself in fractured relationships? In today's real world, we are not only cut off from God, we're cut off from each other. Some of you might remember a few years ago, a woman named Marina Keegan was graduating as an undergraduate at Yale University. She was a writer for the Yale Daily News. She had already received a great job in New York and was planning to move there just after graduation. And just before graduation, she wrote an article for the Yale Daily News called The Opposite of Loneliness. Her article went viral, 1.4 million hits. And five days after graduation, 
Marina was in a car wreck that took her life. In that famous essay, Marina wrote, you know, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness. But if we did, she said, I could say that that's what I want in life. What I'm grateful and thankful to have found at Yale and what I'm scared of losing when we wake up tomorrow and leave this place, it's not quite love, she said, and it's not quite community, but it's that feeling that there are people, an abundance of people who are in this together, who are on your team when the check is paid and you stay at the table. I love that image and we have all experienced it when the check is paid and you stay at the table because you want to linger and be with. Marina's essay describes this longing that you and, have, you and I have to be in community with something greater than ourselves. In commenting on today's scripture lesson from Matthew, Bible scholar Tom Long says, the problem is not that you and I are afraid of prayer. It's that you and I are afraid of God. Maybe we are not yet ready to open our lives up to the holy presence of God. What would it take for us to move beyond our isolation from God and our isolation from other people? Fred Craddock says that knowing God carries with it the assignment to live out the character of God. I don't know about you, but some days I don't feel up to living out the character of God. And so staying on my side of the door can feel more comfortable and more safe than exposing the ordinary life that I live to the presence of the divine. The Gospel of Matthew places that word, therefore, between the call to seek God and the summons to treat others as we would want to be treated. Is it possible that the therefore is a way of empowering us to receive the love of God and to share that with humility with those around us? What could be the connection that Matthew wants to make between our relationship with God in our relationship with others. Around Valentine's Day this year, I read a series of essays about how parental love often shapes a child's love so that when he or she grows up and becomes an adult, they also love in those same deep and profound ways. One of the essays was by the arts commissioner in San Francisco, whose name is Dorka Keene. Dorka remembers that when she was a little girl, her dad was a partner at Goldman Sachs, and after that was the president of a big insurance company. He was already in his 70s when Dorka's parents got a divorce, and the courts declared Dorka's mother to be incompetent and gave her father full custody. She was 12 years old, living with her father alone in, her mid in his mid-70s. And Dorka was traumatized by the divorce, by being separated from her mother, and she became what she called a wild child as a teenager. Her father was undaunted. He remained steadfast and loyal. He supported her. He encouraged her. And she began to watch how her father cared for other people in the family. 
her father's sister died, and her father paid for all her sister's kids to go to college. One of their relatives escaped the draft and moved to Canada, and he reached out and helped that relative. Another relative was diagnosed with AIDS in the early years of the AIDS crisis, and he reached out to help that person as well. And she thought, I would like to grow up to be as caring and as loving as my dad. But meanwhile, her own life as a teenage girl began to spiral out of control. She began using hard drugs. She fell in love with a man much older than her. And when her father set down the rules of the household and insisted that she follow them, she pushed back. She pushed back until finally she packed her bags and moved out of the house at age 17 and moved in with her boyfriend. But her father remained loyal. He kept supporting her. He kept reaching out to her. He kept encouraging her in, to stay in school. And after six months, Dorca had a dream. She dreamed that her father had died. And the next morning, she woke up and she told her boyfriend, I'm never going to use drugs again and I'm moving home, I'm moving back with dad. Her dad welcomed her back into the home with open arms, and that night he opened a bottle of champagne as they had a celebration dinner, and she announced to her father that she had been accepted into his alma mater, and he didn't even know that she was applying to colleges. A couple of weeks later, Dorca's dad went to the hospital, and he died. It was only a few weeks before she graduated from high school. Reflecting back, Dorcas said, Today, when I am dealing with a difficult issue, I think about what my father would do. I think about what my father would say, and I still believe that he is here with me. I feel very imbued with him. What I hear in Dorcas' story is that her father's love empowered her to love others. And I can't help but wonder if that's how it is with God that when we are welcomed into the presence of God's holy love, that we are finally able to truly love one another. The theologian James K.A. Smith writes, to aspire to friendship with God, however, is an ambition for something you could never lose. Friendship, he said, is a conduit of grace. Seeking God leads us to love other people. Therefore, means that when we knock on the door of God, when we seek a relationship with God, our relationships with one another are changed. Each of us must decide if that is a risk we are willing to take.